Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Hi, my name is Tony Mirosevich, and I'm going to be reading you a story from my new book, Pink Harvest, just out from Midlist Press. The collection contains 25 nonfiction stories, or tales of happenstance, as I like to call them. Each story explores some shifting, tilting moment or encounter that can happen on any given day whenever we walk out into the world. One more note about the collection. How I tell these tales might be different from how others might tell the same tale. Everyone always has a different version of what happened when and to whom. Who's to say whose version is the right version or the most true? Each of us can look into the heart of an experience or the heart of a story and see something completely different. So the tales in Pink Harvest are my takes, but I'm happy to report there are other takes out there. The first story in the collection involves a homeless man, an acute care clinic in an urban hospital. It's a few days before Christmas, and the story is called The View. Spillover. That's what occurred when the emergency room could take no more, when those yet to be seen would remain unseen, the pain in the chest, the cough that persisted, the say nurse, I got this hurt in my side and no doctor available to lift the flannel shirt and attend to the knife wound, fresh and ragged. When the emergency room was packed, the gurneys racing by like go-karts or city buses filled to the max, and though you've waited and waited for hours for a bus to stop, the bus roars by. Then it was off to urgent care, a clinic at the other end of the hospital, to deal with the spillover, where a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a nurse, a medical assistant, and a security guard, the bouncer at the bar, saw whomever dropped in for whatever ailment. The beginning of the month was always slow. After the first, when the checks came in, the junkies were too busy scoring, the transactions fast and furious on the street, and for the others, who knows? Maybe everything appears more hopeful at the start of a month, and anything that is acute seems less acute, and all a person needs is occasional care, or lackadaisical care, or less than urgent, urgent care. But by the end of the month, when the money runs out, when there is no food, no drugs, and there is nothing to numb you from your life, your life spills over, and for an instant you begin to see what brought you here, to this set of circumstances, this bottom rung. That's when everyone came streaming in, wanting this, seeking that, and the team dispensed and bandaged and listened and kicked out and saw as many as they could from when they opened at noon until they closed at eight. The day went quickly, but still the day was long. It was a typical day at urgent care, near the end of the month of December, typical except for the fact that it was December 23rd, two days before Christmas. Everyone who came in was at wit's end, because in truth, there's little wit left when there's no presence under the tree. There is no tree. And yes, while there's a free meal down at the mission, there is always that. Still, there's a need for something else to buffer, to ease the blow of Christmas coming round the bend, coming too quickly and no place to go. That day, all the people who came to clinic had a story, some well-developed, some sketched out, some with quite a few key details missing. There was a woman who wanted the morning-after pill. The night before at the bar, she decided, what the hell, it was close to the holidays, and went home with the guy buying drinks. But the next morning, 
When she woke up with this new Santa, she decided no, she wasn't ready to bring another elf into the world. There was a French tourist who lost his luggage, and tucked inside his suitcase was his shaving kit, and inside the kit his diabetes meds, and they were able to give him a new script and prevent diabetic shock. There was a housebater who came in already lit, who wanted painkillers for C. He'd fallen off the scaffolding and hurt his back, but to tell the truth, he'd been hurting ever since his wife died two years ago, unexpectedly, out of the blue, and since then he'd been in a lot of pain. And couldn't they give him something, something to help him through the holidays, something to get him over the hump? They saw 40 patients that day, a normal load given the dosy do of managed care, the nurse, who was feeling festive, brought in a boombox and some Christmas tunes, Elvis's Blue Christmas and Jingle Bell Rock, and she threw in Coltrane's A Love Supreme, perhaps the best Christmas song of all time. Near the end of the shift, around dinner time, someone ordered out for pizza, and all in all, it wasn't a bad day, but by 8 o'clock they were tired and ready to go home to the families and maybe start Christmas early, have a little nog. And that's when the nurse practitioner noticed one more chart on the door, and when she looked in the waiting room, saw one more man. He was homeless. There were all the external signs, the visual clues that go with that word, that accumulate around that word like dusk accumulates around an unused thing, a houseplant or knick-knack, something that stays in one place and does not move. He had a navy-knit cap pulled down low on his forehead, that kept his head warm and controlled his dreads. He was wearing a khaki army coat with rips down the front and sleeves and baggy jeans, and he reeked of urine and other smells, smoke and mold and a must that smells like the corner of a closet where no fresh air has gotten in. He sat there in a plastic orange chair in the fluorescent light of the waiting room, holding one hand up, bent in on his chest like a dog holds up a hurt paw. When she went to him... Yes, she would take him, even though it was the end of the shift. His first words were, I'm terribly sorry, ma'am. I know it's late, and this is an awful inconvenience for you, but I was wondering if you'd be so kind to take a look at my hand. She was surprised by his diction, how articulate, how gracious, for even after 20 years of this kind of work, she still had assumptions about people. She assumed that his speech would be slurred, or that the con would be on, or he would be full of invective, angry at the world and at her, the latest messenger from that world. But the man spoke softly, and each word was well-placed, and he went on to tell her that the same thing, the thing with the hand, had happened a few months ago, and a doctor at a free clinic said he might have some form of palsy. She had seen this presentation before, the hand curled in like a baby, the telltale sign of drunks who fall asleep on the sleet, street, on the pavement, in that position, and she knew that sometimes the hand straightens out, and sometimes not. You've been sleeping on the street, she asked, though she already knew the answer, and he as answered, well, yes, recently he'd been down on his luck, but this was a temporary condition. She said, I can get you some clothes and a place in a shelter for the night. She could pull some strings. And he said, well, no, thank you, for he thought he'd be staying in the neighborhood for a while, around till, well, maybe February, and that he'd be fine. As there was nothing she could do for his hand, she asked, when did you last have something to eat? And he said, well, I had a little something yesterday, I think. And she asked, would you like some pizza? 
and he said, Well, thank you. Yes, I could do with a slice. So she went out of the room and brought him back a piece. She turned her back while he ate, for it's impolite to stare, and suddenly she was on her best behavior, remembering etiquette her mother taught her many years ago. The room was quiet, so quiet she heard the wall clock tick. She looked up and saw that it was 8.30, a half hour past closing, and she knew that outside in the hall the security guard was fidgeting, the medical assistant cursing under his breath, Come on, come on, let's go. But she would not rush the man. When he finished eating, he rose from his chair, and as he was turning to go, he hesitated, and then he said, I hate to bother you any further, but might it be possible to get a little bacitracin? I have a little infection, a little hole in my side, and that seems to help. And she thought, oh no, I need to look at this, and asked him if she could. He got back up on the exam table and removed his ripped jacket, then the black sweater under it, and then the torn brown work shirt under that. When he got down to his T-shirt, the last layer, he lifted it up, and there, on the left side of his chest, where the skin should cover, there was a hole, a large round hole in the side of his chest. She knelt down to look. The hole went in about two inches and created a framed scene like a shadow box. She peered inside. Where there once were ribs, there were no ribs. Nothing to block the view, nothing like the tall, overgrown pine tree in her neighbor's yard that obscured her peak of the sea. It was as if the timbers of the body had been cut away. Farther inside the hole, she saw what looked like a membrane, pink, almost opaque, like a thin, clear sheet, which contrasted with his dark brown skin a thin, thin pink sheet through which she could see the outline of what lay beyond the sheet. First she saw his lungs breathing, then she could see straight inside to the man's heart. For as long as she remembered, she'd always wanted to see what was inside of a person. She imagined herself a different type of explorer, different from Admiral Byrd or Lewis and Clark. She wanted to find an inside passage, cut a slim opening around the heart, a little porthole to see inside, to see what lived there, rancor or love, to see whether the person was big-hearted or small, had the heart the size of a melon or a pea. What if you could see what had wrapped around the heart, love strings or cancer or anything we can't name? What if you could look inside to see whether your loved one's heart was true blue, its color soft and glacial? She pictured a viewfinder, a roll of dimes, a crowd of people waiting to see. When she found her voice again, she said, Listen, I've never seen anything like this. Do you mind if I show my colleagues? For this was a teaching hospital. And he waved his hand and said, Oh, no, that's fine. I know this is important to you people. You people always want to see the view. And then he went on to explain what had happened. He had been diagnosed with a rare infection in his lungs, and a year ago a doctor had performed a -a one-of-a-kind operation to remove the infection. He had to take out a section of ribs to do it. That seemed to work out fine, except that sometimes the rim around the hole got a little infected, and now she noticed the red inflamed area around the opening, the irritated sash of the window. She asked him to wait and had the doctor and the nurse and the med assistant and the resident from the other clinic come in. They looked in at his heart, and he was gracious and said, I know, I know, this is how you learn. And all the while they were looking in, she wondered how he knew 
This is what they needed to learn. Maybe each person saw something different, depending on what his or her own heart held. If your heart was full of joy, you saw reflected delight. If your heart was full of bitterness, reflected enmity. Maybe the doctor saw a heart wrapped in thorns, and maybe the med tech a heart tied with lavender ribbon. Maybe some looked in, as you might look in the window of an Easter egg, and saw a little scene, a house by a lake, and swans or lily pads, and maybe others saw nothing, nothing at all, or a bridal veil, or a veil of tears, a handshake, a ship's bell, a love note, a target, a red zone. After the others left, she took down the antiseptic ointment from the shelf and applied some of the unguent to his skin around the opening, then asked him to dress and went out to write up his chart. It took her a few minutes to write the history, for she kept getting off track and writing down what wasn't essential, imagining what brought him here on this night at this particular intersection of time and place, giving meaning to his visit, then erasing meaning, and then imagining where he would go, the hospital grounds, or the freeway ramps nearby. What would become of him? What would he eat the next day and the next? Would the view inside change with time? Would the hole ever close? She put the last note in the file and went back to the exam room. He was already gone. She'd wanted to say something more, to give him something, something to place over the hole to protect what was inside. She locked the door to the room and walked out to the waiting room. The lights were still on. There, sitting off to one corner, were the nurse and the man. Their backs were to her and their heads were bent down, as if they were praying. But as she walked towards them, she could see their hands were moving. They seemed to be involved in some project. They did not notice her. She saw the man hold the roll of tape while the nurse pulled a length off. The nurse cut a long length from the roll and applied the strip to one of the tears in his coat. She sat down beside them and help applied the rest. For if they couldn't fix the hole in his side, they fixed what they could, the holes in his jacket where the wind blew through. For he had fewer layers than most, and like all of us, he needed some extra cover. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.